This episode of the Australia in the World podcast is produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs, an independent, non-profit organisation promoting interest in and understanding of international affairs in Australia by providing a forum for discussion and debate. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers themselves and not the institutional views of the AWRA. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. My name is Darren Lim from the School of Politics and International Relations at the Australian National University. And with me is Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Hello again, Alan. Hello, Darren. Before we get started, can I briefly celebrate uh, the podcast passing 25,000 downloads in the 16 months and 32 episodes we have been on air, as it were? and remark um, in particular on the fantastic response we have had to our two most recent episodes on Prime Minister Morrison's Lowy Institute speech and our Australia-China bilateral relations discussion that was anchored around Alan's piece in Australian Foreign Affairs. These two episodes are on track to be our second and third most downloaded ever and represent about a fourfold increase in audience from the early months of our podcast last year. And of course, however, our most downloaded episode remains our exclusive interview with top spook Paul Simon, who heads the Australian Secret Intelligence Service. It is clear, though, listeners, that you do like these deeper dives into topics, and so we will look to do more in the future. And indeed, Alan and I have been discussing one on the United States just now. But equally, we are committed to covering current events through a uniquely Australian lens. And so it is two recent news that we will turn to today. We'll begin with the recent summitry in Bangkok and try to work in a recent speech by Defence Minister Lyndon Reynolds in doing so, as well as discuss the conclusion of the RCEP trade agreement. From there, we'll return to the topic of China, this time on the question of human rights in light of a recent speech by Foreign Minister Maurice Payne. And then finally, we'll catch up on news from North East Syria, where a withdrawal of troops by the Trump administration has stranded the Kurds. Let's get started. Okay, so first we are recording this uh, in the afternoon of Wednesday the 6th of November and a week of summitry has just wrapped up in Thailand with the annual ASEAN meetings as well as the East Asia Summit. Now, one benefit of having more than a year under our belt as a podcast means that we have a bit of a reference point for our discussion of annual meetings. So I went back and listened to episode nine of the podcast, where we discussed the 2018 versions of these meetings that were held in Singapore. And back then, we talked about US Vice President Mike Pence and his criticisms of China on the South China Sea. And we contrasted that with attempts at reassuring language from the Chinese Premier. Meanwhile, hand-wringing was occurring by Southeast Asian states caught in between, in particular comments from Singaporean Prime Minister Li Xianlong. Alan, you described it as a pity that Trump didn't turn up, but Vice President Pence did cut a strong and perhaps even controversial figure in prosecuting Washington's line a year ago. Now, if we contrast that with this year, the United States came in with a similar message, both of enthusiasm for engaging with the region and criticism of China on the South China Sea in particular, but with neither Trump, Pence, nor Secretary of State Mike Pompeo bothering to make the trip to Bangkok, the American delegation was vastly diminished, instead being led by National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien and Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross. And it seems like the week was a real disaster for the United States. 
after most ASEAN leaders snubbed the US ASEAN summit that was hosted by O'Brien and notwithstanding an invitation from the absent Trump to visit the United States to meet with him in early 2020. Southeast Asia expert Aaron Connolly, formerly of the Lowy Institute and now of IISS in London, tweeted that he couldn't remember a worse ASEAN meeting for the US. The feedback coming out of Southeast Asian governments is brutal. It follows a very effective appearance by Vice President Pence last year, but that this inconsistency undermines the whole Indo-Pacific strategy. Alan, I find it hard to argue with Connolly's assessment. Would you agree? What are some of the concrete consequences of what seems to have been a strategically inept week for the United States? I take issue first up with the alarm that the uh, ASEAN leaders were snubbing the US. It was, mm. in fact, the reverse. Mm. Trump was snubbing them and inviting them to come around to his place for, <laughs> for a meal next year instead is really no substitute. It's a reminder that the United States really does find it hard to turn up. It has to keep relearning this lesson in uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, I you know, can remember the, exactly the same argument being addressed by uh, Hillary Clinton when mm. she was Secretary of State. I reckon that our PM should have brought himself to say more than it's not for me to be disappointed or not disappointed one way or the other when asked about Trump's non-appearance. Mm. He should at least have made it clear publicly that Australia regarded it as important that the US president turns up in the region. And that's particularly important at the moment because the whole infrastructure of the international organisations that matter most to Australia is crumbling uh, with the APEC leaders meeting in Chile cancelled. So the strategic consequence, get back to the original question, mm. it is that Washington looks um, distant and preoccupied and its impact on regional dynamics becomes ever more marginal. And meanwhile, the Chinese do manage to keep turning up regularly and making their presence felt as a permanent feature of the Indo-Pacific region. So in the end, it does matter that the president decided not to come. Mm. Well, that's a very interesting comment you make about what you would like Prime Minister Morrison to have said, um, because it seems like our Defence Minister, Senator Linda Reynolds, may have said something um, that very weekend when she gave a speech in Washington, D.C. at the Hudson Institute on the 2nd of November, in which she urged the US to follow through with its engagement strategy with a focus, and this was curious for a defence minister, on, quote, fostering economic growth and strengthening democratic institutions. The defence minister noted that Washington had a strong history of linking economics and security. In particular, she highlighted the 1941 Lend-Lease Act in particular as a strategically far-sighted move. And then turning to the present, I think a key message of her speech came through in the following passage, quote, All national aspirations matter. They matter a great deal. We need to listen, really listen to concerns mm. and different perspectives and take account of regional sovereign aspirations and interests. Australia does not take for granted a regional default inclination towards the advantages of existing rules-based systems, nor should the United States. As clear as those advantages are to us, we must constantly prove them to others. 
through actions and demonstrable sovereign respect, not just words. Now, Alan, to me, that sounds like pretty decent advice, maybe the kind of thing that Prime Minister Morrison could have echoed in Bangkok. Now, I mention this speech, of course, because it sort of lays out a vision of a US Indo-Pacific strategy that contrasts with the dismal reality of the past week in Thailand. Hmm. You know, what's your take on the speech? And can you give us a bit of context in terms of, you know, who was she trying to reach with this speech? Was it the occupant of the Oval Office or just the broader policy community in Washington? Uh, look, I don't think Linda Reynolds would have expected Donald Trump to take much <laughs> notice of her views. But there she was in the centre of Washington policy world, trying to register a point with the remnants of the uh, traditional American foreign policy establishment yes. in the hope that the message will eventually be heard. And mm. as you and I both know, there are people in Washington still willing to hear it. So it was an effective way of getting the message across, but I don't think it was aimed at the White House. Just listening to you quoting from the minister's uh, speech, w one of the things that I like about reading speeches by policymakers, and I absolutely do realise that this is a very niche interest, <laughs> uh, Aaron. But one of the things I like is the way you can read into the language that they reach for automatically so much about the times that they're speaking in. So well, a week before when we were talking about Morrison's Lowy mm. speech, and every speech we're talking about today is scattered with the word sovereign, sovereignty, all over the place. So uh, Linda Reynolds, Maurice Payne's, which we'll come to uh, soon. Now, this is a new appearance in Australian political rhetoric. Five years ago, you would have had the same pattern of usage for rules-based order, and five years before that, it would have been Interdependence. This is an interdependent world, we would have uh, said. So there's a change going on here. It's clearly about uh, China, but there's a very good master's thesis in there somewhere for one of our listeners, Darren. <laughs> and perhaps, you know, another foreign policy white paper where we can see the word sovereign mentioned several yeah. dozen times. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, uh, probably the biggest news out of Bangkok was agreement from 15 of the 16 parties negotiating the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, RCEP, to sign a final agreement likely in February of next year. The 15 nations who agreed compromised the 10 ASEAN states, plus Australia, New Zealand, Japan, South Korea and China. The lone holdout was India, which had long been uncertain about joining, given the country's relatively more protectionist stance, especially in agriculture, and the significant trade deficits the country was already running with 11 RCEP members. When asked, Prime Minister Morrison said there was a, quote, very wide open door, end quote, available to India after meeting with Prime Minister Modi on the sidelines of the East Asia Summit. Now, Alan, RCEP maybe has never been as ambitious as the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP, in terms of trying to eliminate behind-the-border regulations that also stifle trade. And India is the only one of the 15 other negotiating parties with whom Australia does not already have a free trade agreement. So in light of that, what's the degree of significance of 
this RCEP agreement for Australia and indeed India's refusal to sign on. Well, you're right that RCEP wasn't as ambitious as the TPP on behind the border issues, but it's symbolically very important, I think, as a sign that the Asia-Pacific region, and I say Asia-Pacific rather than Indo-Pacific in this <laughs> context, is still prepared to work on opening trade despite the overall global chill we're feeling, uh, you know, with the WTO and, and uh, Washington's approach. It's also important because it's an ASEAN-led initiative that shows that constructive diplomacy can continue to come from the world's middle powers. So it's an example of one of the things that Australian governments have long been saying we need to do more of. India's reluctance to come along is disappointing, but it's not particularly surprising given, as you said, the you know long-standing Indian disposition uh, towards autarky and protectionism. Uh, and all of that is always made more complicated by the political dynamics of, of India's uh, democracy. Prime Minister Modi promised economic reforms, but those have failed to materialise. You can sort of understand why, but the lack of reforms does impose real constraints on India's capacity to grow economically. And it's worth remembering that it needs to grow at 7.5% a year just to accommodate the growth of its uh, workforce. So the result is that China's nominal GDP is now five times the size of India's. So India, without economic reform, is less likely to be a geopolitical balancer to mm. China. And um, economically, the withdrawal from RCEP is a blow to those here in Australia who hoped that India might enable us to diversify some at least of our um, overwhelmingly China-dominated uh, trade. Yes. yes. So, you know, uh, the Prime Minister has said that the door will remain wide, wide, wide open. I think it'll remain wide open for quite a long time to come. Okay, well, before we move on, a quick postscript while we are discussing the topic of India, and that is that it has been reported by the Australian Financial Review that former New South Wales Premier Barry O'Farrell will be appointed as Australia's next High Commissioner to India, replacing career diplomat Harinder Sidhu when her posting ends early next year. The piece in the AFR reported this rumour then actually goes on to quote O'Farrell himself at the AFR's India Business Summit, which I believe was about a year ago, where he said, I do wonder whether we should seek to further the relationship by doing what we do in Washington and London, every now and then appointing a senior former federal politician to the post of High Commissioner to India. Alan, let's give O'Farrell the benefit of the doubt here that he wasn't auditioning for the job then because he does mention the appointment of a federal politician. But I would like to return to the discussion that we've had previously on the podcast regarding the benefits of appointing an ambassador or a high commissioner that is a close political ally or a close politically to the prime minister and presumably has the prime minister's complete trust. And in this case, you know, who was also on the same side of politics as Prime Minister Modi. But with the downside that such a post would come with having a High Commissioner who doesn't have the diplomatic 
training and experience of a career DFAT officer. What are your thoughts? Uh, well, if the rumour about O'Farrell is correct, it's another sign that this government has been unusually active in sending political appointees to senior diplomatic positions. Um, I understand that it's at an all-time uh, record. I mean, we've had political appointees before, of course, but it's unprecedented, I think, for almost all Australia's key ambassadorial posts to be in the hands of political appointees. So at the moment, you've got former politicians in Washington and, and London, that's not so unusual, but also in Tokyo, Wellington, UN New York, and perhaps New Delhi, and that is much more unusual. Only Beijing, indeed, among the key posts, remains in the hands of a professional, and if, if you believe the Canberra rumour mill, that was a close-run <laughs> thing too. And now, of course, there are times when political appointments to diplomatic posts make sense. As you say, politicians can bring a particular skill or connection to a relationship and sometimes this can happen in counterintuitive ways. Uh, Bob Hawke left the Liberal Party, Sir Robert Cotton, as ambassador in Washington, precisely to reassure the Reagan administration about the Australian Labor government. Uh, and we've had political appointments in New uh, Delhi in the past as well. Um, Gough Whitlam sent the uh, journalist and academic Bruce Grant, who is a lecturer of mine in international relations at Melbourne University in another century, <laughs> to India. There's hope for me yet, Alan. There's hope for me yet. <laughs> but I must say I find it hard to see a particular reason in this case at this time with India. And it's beginning to look more like the sort of division of the spoils mm. that we associate with the American uh, diplomatic mm. tradition. Mm. Okay, well, let's move on. And our second topic is on China technology and human rights. And although we just spent an entire episode discussing China, you know, we are compelled to return to the issue by the news of the day. And we start with a speech given by Foreign Minister Maurice Payne at the United States Study Centre on the 29th of October last week. Now, before we get to the substance of her speech, Alan, I cannot resist asking for your response to Payne's applauding of the reforms to the Universal Postal Union, which in her speech she described as a timely example of modernising an international institution to keep pace with changes in technology. How do you feel about your favourite international organisation these days? You know, do you share her optimistic take? Uh, look, I know what you're you're getting at uh, <laughs> here, Darren. You're having, you're having having a go at. Well, uh, we've, it's just been remarkable uh, that the UPU <laughs> has come up multiple times on the podcast, and now it's appearing in Foreign Minister Payne's speeches. So I think that's pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> You know, it's true, as we have said all along, that international institutions do need to adjust to the uh, to the environment. And and when the minister was talking about this in her in her speech, she said this: Australia worked with a number of other countries to modernise the organisation and make delivery costs, including for our own Australia Post, more equitable. Instead of seeing this essential international system for the past 145 years with key members just walking away, it was preserved and strengthened. Mm. So I'm with the minister. These institutions can be changed and strengthened without the need, as the 
Trump administration threatened yes. to do uh, and has threatened to do again just this week, well, it has done again mm. uh, this week with the Paris Accords to bring the pillars of the whole system crashing down around us. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, the heart of Payne's speech was about the clash of technology with values. After noting the disruptive impact of technology, and not just on foreign and security policy, but on social life generally, Payne pivoted to the malevolent use of technology on and against individuals and communities. She noted the implications for surveillance, censorship and privacy, and stated that, quote, Western liberal democracies cannot be silent or absent from this debate, and that Australia was working to ensure that the rules-based international order applies equally online as it does offline. Because if we don't, quote, we risk encouraging those who seek to misuse cyberspace as a means of repression, control and instability. So with all that as context or set up in her speech, we now turn to the part that ruffled feathers. After insisting that Australia does not interfere with other countries' political systems, Payne asserted that, quote, speaking our minds does not constitute interference in another country, end quote. She then goes on to mention issues on which Australia has advocated during its membership of the Human Rights Council at the United Nations. We have the Jamal Khashoggi killing, the Rohingya in Myanmar, and the death penalty. And then she stated, quote, we have also addressed the treatment of the Uyghur people in Xinjiang in China. Before she, then she also mentions the imprisoned writer, Dr. Yang Jun. She then spoke for a few minutes about the differences in political values between Australia and the PRC but that these values did not remove scope for cooperation, um, even as differences were aired. And then she continued, quote, Turning a blind eye to all human rights violations means an acceptance of behaviour that undermines the foundations of international peace and stability. Where there is no challenge, there is no progress. Our long-term interests depend on our taking a firm stand even if it displeases some of our counterparts, some other countries, in the short term. Alan, can I just start with your reactions to this element of the speech? Yeah, well, I thought it was well put and well balanced. Uh, Australia uh, certainly you know, um, supports sovereignty and non-interference in the internal affairs of other countries. We, can, we complain about foreign interference a lot, mm. but that can never mean for us staying silent in the face of challenges to abuses of human rights. Um, it does, though, require us to be consistent. The danger is that we use values selectively as a political attack point instead of uh, espousing the same principles wherever they're being ignored, including by our friends. And that's why I thought that Maurice Payne was uh, was right to express that broad spectrum of Australian concerns about human rights. Mm. Well, the Chinese government was not happy. At a press conference in Beijing, a spokesperson for the foreign ministry responded when asked about the speech, quote, Payne also made an issue of Xinjiang, in total disregard of facts to serve political purposes. Such ill-advised remarks will not help to improve or grow relations with China. We have lodged stern representations to the Australian side 
and pointed out the inappropriate nature of her conduct. Alan, it strikes me that the problem here is not simply that the PRC has different political values to Australia. It's that the Chinese government does not agree with Payne's claim that speaking our minds does not constitute interference in another country. For them, public criticism is interference. They believe, I think, that such criticism undermines the legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party and the, the Chinese government, which is why the government has invested so many resources in trying to control, influence and censor how China is talked about around the world, something we discussed in our last episode. So this doesn't strike me as an area where the two sides can just simply agree to disagree. You know, the manifestation of our disagreement is that they are perceiving a direct challenge to their sovereignty. Do, do you agree, Alan? And what options does the Australian government have? Well, I would just uh, sort of shrug my shoulder and, and move on here. I think we can live quite well with stern representations on these uh, okay. matters. But I'm not quite sure what you mean when you say that this is not an area where we can agree to disagree. I mean, what other option uh, is there? We've made it clear that we'll speak out when uh, necessary, and I think that's sort of um, you know central to our to our uh, to our system is the uh, need for governments to be able to do that. So, what have you got in mind? I let me answer that, uh, but first let me uh, bring in another element here, which is an op-ed that was published in the Fin Review the same day of Payne's speech on the 29th of October by former ambassador to China, Jeff Raby, who was highly critical of the chill in bilateral relations. He described the 5G decision as a spectacular own goal, opposition to the Belt and Road Initiative as principally ideological, and praise the Andrews government in Victoria for its subnational diplomacy, including a recent memorandum of understanding signed in Beijing. He concludes by writing, if we wish to reflect the Australian community's concern over Hong Kong, if that should become necessary, or over human rights of the Uyghurs and other ethnic minorities, at present we have nothing other than megaphone diplomacy, which is usually counterproductive. It is time for diplomats to be put in charge of our foreign policy on China. So before I answer your question, Alan, uh, is, is there merit to this critique? And, and was Payne's speech later that day an example of megaphone diplomacy, do you think? No, I, I don't think her speech was megaphone diplomacy, but it, it's certainly, um, you know, taking Jeff's point, impossible to claim at the moment that we're engaged deeply with China in a way that would enable any fruitful discussions uh, on issues where our interests and values differ. So it, it may not be megaphone diplomacy, but we're certainly speaking at each other rather than to each other. Now, that's not entirely uh, our fault, uh, although for reasons we've discussed before, we're not uh, blameless. But I agree that we do need to find a way of moving back into a relationship where at the various embassies of uh, the various uh, levels of embassies, uh, senior officials, ministers, we're engaged in detailed discussion about the issues that matter 
most to us, whether it doesn't matter whether they're you know bilateral or regional or global. Now, I don't think it necessarily requires diplomats to do that, but it does require diplomacy. And this to circle back then to your question, Alan, this is where or what I meant by it's hard to simply agree to disagree because this is such a black and white issue for China that expressing the simple act of expressing our values and our disagreement with how they conduct themselves uh, internally precludes any further engagement, right? They see it as an assault on their sovereignty and it becomes a primary irritant in the chill and makes it impossible to do the kind of engagement that Raby and, and, and you, you know, rightfully say is necessary. So how, how do we square that circle um, if, it's so, if, if it's taken so seriously rather than just an, something that we say you know, out into the world but then try to move on afterwards? Uh, look, I see your point, Darren, but I think you're overstating the uh, the case. The, uh, the comment by the foreign ministry spokesman was made in response to a question at a press conference. I don't think that it's uh, every time that we make some comment about uh, human rights uh, anywhere that precludes us from finding ways of engaging with China mm. on a whole range of these uh, other issues that's what diplomacy is all about and that's what you argued in your australian foreign affairs piece alan so <laughs> it is indeed it is indeed. a all good, a good <laughs> one more quick element to this story which is to turn to again actually that very same day the 29th of october we saw some action at the united nations specifically the third committee uh, which deals with human rights and this was interesting because we saw dueling statements um, that illustrated the fault lines globally on human rights in China. You had one statement that was made by the UK on behalf of 23 countries, including Australia, uh, France, Germany, Japan, the United States, which criticised China's treatment of the ethnic Uyghurs in Xinjiang and called for the Office of the United Nations Commissioner for Human Rights to be given access to the region. In response, you had a statement that was made by Belarus, on behalf of 54 countries, including Pakistan, Russia and Egypt, which praised China's achievements regarding human rights, quote, by adhering to the people-centred development philosophy and seeking uh, emphasis on human rights to be, quote, objective, transparent, non-selective, constructive, non-confrontational and non-politicised. So, Alan, I appreciate that these events, you know, might not tell us much that's new about the state of the rules-based order and the human rights protection regime. But you know, Australia is on the Human Rights Council at the moment. You know, we put in the effort to be elected. And our guest from a few episodes ago, Claire Walsh of DFAT, did discuss the importance of human rights to Australia's foreign policy agenda. So when you read a news story like this, can I ask you just to channel the sentiments and emotions of our diplomats, both in Geneva, here in Canberra, and around the world? You know, is this kind of event a stinging defeat or is it more just par for the course in the great game of global diplomacy? Our um, multilateral diplo uh, diplomats uh, tend to be world-weary types. <laughs> <laughs> I think, Darren, so I'd go for par for the course in the great game of uh, global uh, diplomacy. Uh, this is, you know, there was every reason for this sort of statement to be made. It's a reminder, though, that however we think about human rights, the developing world does tend to focus on economic and social rights um, 
rather than political rights. Now, there are plenty of reasons why authoritarian states think this is a useful argument for them to uh, use. But, but I think we make a mistake if we forget that the Universal Declaration on Human Rights also does address matters such as a standard of living adequate for the health and well-being for, of the people of the, the world. The Human Rights Declaration is multifaceted in the way it addresses human needs. Uh, but I must say that I thought the, uh, the Belarusian um, uh, r request for a non-politicised debate on human rights mm. was uh, uh, difficult to uh, to manage. Uh, human rights, in in that sense, are politics, and you can't take the politics out of them. Mm. Okay, well, let's move on um, to our third item, which is Syria, Turkey, and the Kurds. And because it's been a while since we did a news podcast, we haven't discussed the situation in northeast Syria. So let's try to do so quickly. As I'm sure all of our listeners are aware, on the 6th of October, the White House announced a withdrawal of US troops from northern Syria, which left the Kurds, who had been allies with the Americans in the fight against ISIS, unprotected against encroaching Turkish forces. Now, in response to Trump's decision, the Australian Foreign Minister, Maurice Payne, commented in a radio interview on the 9th of October that, quote, Countries are able to make decisions in their own national interests, and that is what the president has obviously done in this case, and it's the premise upon which Australia makes our own decisions, of course. The shadow foreign minister, Penny Wong, struck a different tone, where she said, quote, We are concerned regarding the consequences of this decision by the Trump administration, and the government, the Australian government, should express these concerns. Nevertheless, in response to Trump's actions, Turkey began airstrikes on border towns that led to nine days of fighting, a ceasefire and a sort of a new status quo in the region where it seems like the Kurds have lost ground, Turkey, the Syrian government and of course um, the Russians now have sort of taken control of the area. So in response to all this, both the Prime Minister and the Foreign Minister released a statement saying, while Turkey has legitimate domestic security concerns, unilateral cross-border military action will not solve these concerns, whilst other countries, including the US, imposed sanctions. So, Alan, there's a lot to discuss here, and I guess we don't want to, to get too into the, the, the merit of the argument, but can I just sort of ask you a question about credibility? There's obviously a push from inside the United States to withdraw US troops from, in some cases, decades-long commitments abroad, if I think about the Afghanistan case. And Trump certainly made the argument that, that we need to bring their troops home. But the Kurds were reliable partners in a, an important fight, and they have really been left high and dry here. So does this, do you think, affect US credibility long term? You know, will they be perceived to be unreliable you know, long past the Trump administration? Or is this something that you think will be confined to Trump himself? I, I think myself that the lessons uh, drawn are going to go further than the uh, Trump administration, um, at least in the Middle East, because we've now got examples from both Democratic and Republican administrations of the sort of struggle the United States continues to have in extricating itself from the strategic quagmire that followed on from the Bush administration's initial mm. decision to invade Iraq. Now, no potential partner for the US, I think, would expect consistency 
from the Trump administration, and that will be reinforced if the president is re-elected. But even if he doesn't get another term, I suspect that the world will expect not necessarily a more unreliable United States, but certainly a more cautious America, and that they will draw conclusions from that. Hmm. Well, quickly then on the Australian angle, and my question is really about sort of you know, Penny Wong's attempts to criticise the Australian government for being you know, too silent or too soft on Trump's decision. You know, you would expect that from an opposition spokesperson. But you know, what's your take here? Should the Australian government have been a bit more strident in defending the Kurds and, and asking the US to live up to its commitments? Well, I, this is one of those areas where I don't think that the Australian government, as opposed to Australian commentators like you and me who can wrap it on for all we like, had any standing or reason to get involved in commentary about the decision. We couldn't affect events on the ground one way or the other. So I, I think the government was right to save its ammunition for other area, other issues where uh, we might have a more direct interest. Okay, Alan, well, let's move on to our final segment, as always, reading, listening and watching. Alan, what have you been reading, listening or watching lately? Well, we've been talking about the Middle East and I had the pleasure of launching recently a book by a former colleague of mine from ONA, um, Ashton Robinson, called Meeting Saddam's Men, Looking for Iraq's Weapons of Mass Destruction. This is a really terrific account of the search for WMD after the invasion of Iraq and Australia's participation in it. Um, Australia has too few memoirs from our diplomats, um, uh, soldiers and intelligence analysts about the practical work of statecraft. And this is a terrific addition to the genre. And it's also a reminder that if Australia wants to affect standard setting in the way that Scott Morrison spoke about in his Lowy speech, we do need to build and preserve real mm. technical expertise in government mm. and the community on these issues, you know, whether it's uh, cyber or nuclear arms control, or in this case, the control of chemical weapons. So mm. it's a, a really good book for policymakers, particularly younger policymakers in uh, Canberra to read, I think. Great. Well, I want to recommend an article and a podcast. The article is titled Stop Trying to Raise Successful Kids by Adam Grant, uh, who was a psychologist at uh, the University of Pennsylvania, I believe, and Alison Sweet Grant, and that's in The Atlantic. And their argument, which you know they are talking about parenting, but I think that it applies generally, um, is that there is too much emphasis on success uh, and too little emphasis on kindness, and that there is good evidence to suggest that kindness and generosity are far better predictors of even success, but also of happiness. And then relatedly, there's a podcast episode from the Ezra Klein show in which he interviews Vivek Murthy on the loneliness epidemic. Now, Murthy was the Surgeon General in the Obama administration. And so this was really the peak of his professional career where he was very busy and very successful. But as he describes, it was also one of the loneliest times in his life. And his story sort of demonstrates that you know, being successful and busy doesn't you know, protect one from being lonely. And that one of the major cures, and this is the connection to the article, is helping others, you know, especially through things like volunteering and, and, and giving, is one way to reconnect with society, to reconnect with other people. So I think they're well worth a look. 
That's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. As always, we want to thank AAAA intern James Hayne for his help with research and audio editing, XC Chong for research support, and Rory Stenning for composing our theme music. We'll talk to you again soon. Bye.